Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Revelation 13. We've read this before, but it is so powerfully illustrated in the 17th century in England. Now, remember what the book of Revelation is about. It is about the how God destroys the two great enemies of the church in the first century. And the first century enemies of the church were, first of all, apostate Judaism, and second of all, anti-Christian Rome. And we know that in 70 AD, apostate Judaism fell, and a few centuries later, very few centuries later, Rome fell. And the Christian church continues to this very day. And anything or any institution or movement or nation that bears the same characteristics of apostate Judaism or anti-Christian Rome in the first century, or any nation or organization which treats the church as either one of those organizations and nations, will receive similar judgment. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is at work from the right hand of God, destroying his enemies and ours. Apostate Judaism has reference to apostate religion. Religion that claims uh, to be Christian, religion that claims to uh, have the same forms, the same ideas, but they've taken our Christian bottles that says, uh, have the doctrines on the labels, and they've filled them with poison. They've, they've left the faith. Uh, Anti-Christian Rome was tyrannical, and it persecuted the church. Now, in the 13th chapter of Revelation, as we've seen, we have two beasts. The first beast coming out of the sea is is anti-Christian tyrannies, anti-Christian Rome. The second beast, with its false prophet from the land, is apostate religion, apostate Judaism. Notice how in this chapter, both of them join hands to persecute the church. And he stood on the sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And they worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who's like the beast and who's able to wage war with him? Obviously, the dragon is Satan himself. And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Now, notice as we go on, the phrase was given to him, was given to him, was given to him. Anti-Christian civil governments are terrible, bloodthirsty, terrifying creatures, but they have no authority if it were not given to them of God. Behind all of this is God himself carrying out his purposes. Six, and he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity goes. If anyone's killed with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. And I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb. You see, he's imitators, trying to look like Jesus. He's an imitator. Two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound was healed. And he performed great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast. See, apostate religion always claims miracles. Apostate churches that can even turn bread and wine into flesh and blood. That's a miracle. 
telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And there was given him to give breath to the image of the beast, and the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one should be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his, of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. The number is that of a man is number 666, which was the numerical value of the name of Nero Caesar. But now notice here. You have a beast from the sea, an anti-Christian civil government, a beast from the land with his false prophet, which is apostate Christianity, apostate religion. Uh, they join hands together and the apostate religion works to get people to worship the civil government. Both are instigated and energized by Satan himself. And with the help of the apostate church, the tyrannical government forces people either to live by its law order and bear the mark of a humanistic law order upon its forehead or suffer intense persecution. And, of course, Christians already have a law written on their forehead. They already have a mark, and that is the law of God. And so, therefore, they will be persecuted persecuted by any civil government that claims to be God. Now, what's going to happen to this apostate religion and this anti-Christian government? Turn to Revelation 20. In Revelation 20, you have this great picture of the final defeat of Satan down in verse 10 on the great white throne judgment day. And it says in verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And if you follow, you see it's the day at the final judgment, the great white throne judgment. Now, I want you to think for a minute. Satan is not going to go to hell until the great day of judgment. Don't think he's in hell. I mean, people get the idea that Satan's the great tormentor. He's sitting down there in hell, tormenting everybody. Satan is as much afraid of hell as anybody else, or more so. He's going to spend eternity being tormented in hell, not tormenting people in hell. He's not in hell yet. But on the day of judgment, and not before, on the day of judgment, he's going to be cast into hell. Now, think now. The day of judgment is the last day of history, and on the last day of history, Satan's going to be cast into hell. And notice in verse 10, what does he find when he's cast there? Who's already beat him there? The beast and the false prophet. The anti-Christian civil government, the apostate religions. Now, if Satan is not going to be cast into hell until the last day, and if when he gets there he's already found anti-Christian civil governments, and apostate churches and religions. When did the apostate religions and churches and the anti-Christian civil governments go to hell? Before the end of history. In time and space and history. Before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see worked out 1 Corinthians 15:24, which says, Then comes the end... Not when he will put down all rebellion, but after he has put down all rebellion. Then comes the end of the world. And so behind this severe persecution, and this is where God's people found comfort back in those days, where we can find in any day, that behind all the persecution of, of apostate churches and of anti-Christian tyrants, behind all that is the sovereign hand of God. And God's not going to let anybody harm a hair on the head of any of his people without his will. And God's people know that however severe and gruesome they might act and however loudly they might roar, that, both, that the doom of tyrants, of apostate churches, and of Satan himself is sealed. And Christians win the day and the war. Now, we don't see this any more clearly illustrated in history than during the reign of Charles I, King of England. You remember he was the son of James I, came to the throne upon his daddy's gruesome death in 1625, and reigned until his gruesome death, but glorious death, 1649. All right, now we started talking about Charles I and his reign last week. Let's continue. 
Remember last week we talked about the Earl of Buckingham, George Villiers, who was his daddy's lover and, and had this uncanny dominant influence on Charles I, though there was not any uh, uh, homosexual hanky-panky going on. That here you have George Villiers, who was the uncrowned king of England, dominating Charles I because Charles I was such a cowardly, wimpish person. Well, let's continue now and talk about Charles and Parliament. They were always at each other's throat, just like his daddy, James, and Parliament were always at each other's throat. In fact, under Charles I, this hostility increased, especially whenever the House of Commons would try to redress the grievances that it had against the kings of England for persecuting these ministers of the gospel and for driving them into bankruptcy and poverty. The House of Commons continually agree, uh, expressed petitions of grievance against the, king, uh, the, tyrant, uh, the uh, tyranny of the English kings. But every time Charles I heard House of Commons complain, he was determined all the more to assert his prerogative and not to yield one inch. And so he finally dissolved Parliament. And in 1628, three years after he became king, and was determined to govern England without a parliament. That'd be like the President of the United States said, I'm sick and tired of this Congress. We're not having Congress anymore. Forget it. And he uses the power of the military to do away with the Congress. I'm going to rule without a Congress. Well, that's what Charles I did, reign without a Congress for 12 years. In the meanwhile, he had a group of advisors called the Privy Council, which was sort of like a cabinet, like the President's cabinet, except more powerful. And this Privy Council had become one of the most powerful uh, uh, branches of government in England back in those days. He submitted himself, surrendered his own will to the unscrupulous counsel and advice of the men on his privy council. And the men on this privy council had the same goal as Richelieu had. You remember we had some questions last week about Richelieu in France. What was Richelieu's goal in France? To make the power of the king of France absolute. So that no, anybody who deviated in the smallest way from the power of the king would be punished by the king. That was the goal of the Privy Council. These men are around Charles I. You see, the Stuarts all had this understanding of themselves that the people owed the king absolute, unquestioned, unqualified submission. That the people of England were to submit to the pleasure and to the laws and the regulations of the king. That the king was above the law. Not only was he above the law, he was the law. So the Latin phrase for the uh, absolute tyranny <coughs> of the Stuarts was rex lex. You see the two Latin words. Rex lex. The king is law. You can see now why the great Presbyterian Samuel Rutherford in the 1640s was declared a capital criminal and had he not died and gone to heaven would have been executed by the monarch and all of his books burned because the title of his book was Lex Rex not Rex Lex but Lex Rex the law is king and so you want one of the first great books of Christian reconstruction in the modern world, find Lex Rex, it's been reprinted by Samuel Rutherford. That book and the book by the Huguenots that we mentioned earlier were two of the best-selling books in the colonies on the eve of the American War of Independence. Samuel Rutherford. Well, anyway, let me tell you what, the, what Charles thought. Charles thought, I am not bound to observe the laws of this realm. The authority of Parliament is not necessary for imposing taxes, and those who refuse obedience to the king transgress the law of God, insult the king's authority, and are guilty of impiety, disloyalty, and rebellion. That was the added. I mean, not much room to maneuver if you're a reform man in a country where you have a king and his privy council calling the shots who believe such things as that. Well, these, this Privy Council, these unscrupulous men around him, believed, now listen, here's what they were committed to. They believed that if the end result of good and effective government was attained, 
it didn't matter very much about the means and the ways that you used to attain that good and effective government. Sound familiar? If the end result of good government for a people was achieved, it really didn't matter how much you stretched the king's authority over people's lives. It didn't really matter how many ancient liberties you invaded or infringed upon. It really didn't matter how the constitution of the land was violated in spirit as long as the letter was preserved. The, the means didn't matter as long as the end, which was good government and effective government and orderly government, was reached. So they committed themselves to a dangerous game. And success in this game meant that the liberties of their country, both civil and religious, would be submitted to a despotism that England had never experienced prior to that time. Now, back in the days of the Soviet Empire, how did you define a communist? What well, was some simple little way of defining a communist? Communist is somebody who believed the end justified the means. Somebody who said, well, the end result is the, all, all, uh, is the only thing that matters. It really doesn't matter about the means you have to get there. If you have to step on a few rights, if you have to kill a few people, if you have to put a few people in concentration camps, if you have to commit a holocaust to a, to a few uh, ethnic groups, okay, as long as the end result is all right. The end justifies the means. Now, we know there are no communists left, right? I mean, there's no communists anywhere in the world, right? Only pragmatists. We don't have any communists anymore. We only got pragmatists now. Because communism's dead, the Soviet empire's dissolved. So we only got, we only got pragmatists. And, uh, in, for instance, you listen to congressmen speak today, or presidents, or presidential candidates, whether they're Republican or whether they're Democrat, whether they're liberal or conservative. And uh, what will they tell you? They'll tell you, I'm no ideologue. I'm not somebody that's going to be committed to an uh, blindly to an ideology, right or wrong. I believe that whatever works best, we should do. Whatever works best. Let's be willing to evaluate everything, all, uh, all uh, dearly loved, uh, cherished beliefs, governmental practices. Let's evaluate them all and let's just do whatever works best because the ends justify the means. Haven't gotten too far from the Privy Council of Charles I, you know. Let me give you the gist of a conversation that I had once with a Speaker of the House in the United States House of Representatives. I was in his office, and we were talking, the two of us, and the subject of Larry McDonald came up. And he looked at me, the speaker, looked at me, and he said, Joe, he said, you know, Larry McDonald would make me so angry. I said, why is that, Congressman so-and-so, because he wasn't a speaker at the time. I said, why is that? <laughs> I'm not going to mention any names. <laughs> I don't want to have to go to the Tower of London for all this. I said, why did you get mad at Larry McDonald? He said, because sometimes, this is almost a direct quote, he said, sometimes Larry McDonald would vote against a bill and the only reason he would have for voting against it was his personal religious convictions. He never learned to be a pragmatist. Now, whenever anybody says to you, you don't want to be an ideologue, you don't want to be blindly committed to an adopt, uh, uh, ideology. What they're telling you is, don't be committed inflexibly to the historic Christian faith. Be flexible. Be willing to give and take a little. Because after all, we're all working toward the same result, aren't we? It really doesn't matter how we get there, just so we get there. So if we have to break the Constitution over here, if we have to lay aside religious convictions over here, let's don't worry about these things. We're all working toward the same goal. No, we are not working toward the same goal. I am working toward the establishment of the crown rights of Jesus Christ in every area of America's culture by the Word of God. That is not what the Speaker of the House is working toward.
if you want one word that describes what pragmatists are working for now. It's the same word the communists were working for then. And it's the same word that describes what the Privy Council of Charles I was working for then. Tyranny. Complete civil control of every aspect of American life. Well, in 1628, Charles I had silenced, earlier, he'd silenced theological debate in Cambridge. Remember, Congress wanted him to get rid of Earl of Buckingham because Earl of Buckingham was committed to tyranny. And so Charles I said, I'm not only not going to get rid of the Earl of Buckingham, I'm going to make him Chancellor of Cambridge. Because I want this debate about predestination to stop in Cambridge. So I'm going to put a good Arminian as the head of that university. Well, what Charles I did in Cambridge in 1628, he did for all of England. He outlawed religious controversy in all of England for the protection of Arminianism and for the silencing of the Reformed faith. What do you think Parliament did? Parliament was overwhelmingly reformed. And Parliament continued to protest Charles I's silence of the Reformed faith. And what did Charles I do in the face of the mounting protests of Parliament? Continued to elevate more and more Arminian clergy into places of power and authority over, over all of England. What did Parliament do then? Parliament refused to grant Charles I uh, money, and he was always needing money to, to underwrite his uh, financially exhausting wars, as well as to pay for all his suits. And so he'd go to Congress for money. Congress would say, no more money, your majesty. So what would Charles I do? He would continue to collect illegal taxes without Parliament. Parliament considered that illegal and a violation of the petition of rights which Charles I himself had signed and said he would abide by. But as we've learned, Charles I did not consider himself bound by any promise he ever made. So that by March 1629, four years after he came to the throne, there was a total impasse between the King of England and the Parliament. The King of England sent word, I'm dissolving this Parliament. I'm tired of your interference with my prerogative. I'm dissolving the Parliament. Parliament refused to, be dissol refused to receive the order until it voted on a resolution by a man named John Eliot. Great man, Sir John Eliot. John Eliot made a motion. And here's the literal motion. Now listen. Whoever brought in innovations in religion or introduced opinions disagreeing from those of the true and orthodox church, whoever voluntarily paid those duties was to be counted an enemy to the kingdom and a betrayer of our liberties. Now let's read between the lines. Somebody who brought forth innovations in religion... Who was that? Now, remember, the Church of England had already adopted the 39 Articles as its official doctrinal statement. And the 39 Articles of the Church of England was thoroughly Calvinistic. Thoroughly Calvinistic. So that the Church of England was committed to the Reformed faith on paper. Many of its most powerful bishops and one of its archbishops, George Abbott, uh, 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 the last Augustinian, were committed to the Reformed faith. To bring innovation in religion in the Church of England would be to try to denigrate the Reformed faith, replace it with Arminianism and Anglo-Catholic liturgical rites and practices. So now who would that make the innovator? The King of England. So Sir John Eliot said, whoever brings in innovations in religions, religion or introduces opinions disagreeing with those of the true and orthodox, i.e. read Reformed Church, and whoever submits to them, that is, all the non-reformed bishop and the whole hierarchy of the Church of England, is to be accounted an enemy to the kingdom of England. Well, 
they got word that the king was marching an army to Parliament to stop it. The resolution was hurry, hurly, uh, quickly read. The speaker said, all in favor say aye. Eyes were said quickly. Motion passed. They hightailed it out of there just in time to meet the army of the king. And as the army of the king was coming into the parliament, everybody had voted, uh, had left, but the motion passed. And the House of Commons, for all practical purposes, had declared King Charles I an enemy to all Englishmen. How do you think the king took this? As you would expect, he was furious and he would, would have vengeance, take revenge at all costs. So he picked a man named Chambers. I don't even know his last name. He was simply a businessman who agreed with the parliament and refused to pay the taxes. Because what the bill said was anybody who pays the taxes, the un- illegal taxes of the king, is also an enemy of the state. <laughs> so Chambers, out of conscience, did not pay the illegal tax. The king's men arrested him, fined him 2,000 pounds, which was an immense amount of money in those days, and threw him in prison for years. Sir John Eliot and his associates that had this resolution passed were also thrown in, 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 in prison. All of them were fined. Eventually, as time passed, Eliot's followers gave in and they let him out. But Sir John Eliot stayed true to his conscience. And because he would not abandon his position that to introduce Arminianism in the Church of England, whoever did so was an enemy of the country. He stayed in prison the rest of his life. And when he died in the Tower of London in 1632, King Charles, still determined to have revenge, refused to even let them take his body and bury it in his family Cemetery. Now, there are three men that you need to remember. Now, remember, we're, we're right on the verge of the, of the West, Westminster Confession of Faith. This has been an introduction now since year, years ago. We've been talking about history now for months to set the stage. And in order to understand the impact, the significance of the Westminster Assembly in 1643, you have to understand the previous 643 years of British history, which is what we've tried to do now. Well, we're right on the verge. We're approaching the 1630s now. Remember, King Charles was king when the Westminster Assembly was called. So we're right on the threshold, and this is some of the most important things to understand. And there were three men that you need to understand that played, uh, uh, that were on center stage. They were Charles Stuart, King Charles I of England, Archbishop William Laud, L-A-U-D, Archbishop of Canterbury, and a man you may never have heard of, but I hope you remember him hereafter, Thomas Wentworth, W-E-N-T-W-O-R-T-H, known in history as the Earl of Strafford. The Earl of Strafford, Thomas Wentworth. Now, all three of these men were the closest of associates. And in those three men, you got the beast from the sea and the beast from the land and the false prophet. I mean, they're all right here. And I want you to learn about them because these men were the men that were the most responsible for the expansion of tyranny in Great Britain. These three men show you the effects of true spirit wrought revival. What happens when the Holy Spirit takes a hold of a culture and thoroughly reforms it by the Word of God? England was going through one of the greatest spirit-wrought revivals, the greatest spirit-wrought revival in its history. That work of the Holy Spirit gave birth to the Westminster Assembly and the Westminster Confession of Faith. And the same work of the Spirit reviving Christendom in England that gave birth to the Westminster Confession of Faith led to the public execution and beheading of Charles Stuart, Archbishop Laud, and Thomas Wentworth. Now let's talk about those three men. First of all, Archbishop Laud. Charles I was always dominated by somebody. In his early years, he was dominated by George Villiers, Earl of Buckingham. 
Then Buckingham dies and Archbishop Laud moves in as the dominating influence on this weak and indecisive Charles. Archbishop Laud was exactly the opposite of Charles. By the way, I uh, was in an, an Anglican funeral recently where I got to read a prayer. <laughs> and uh, the Anglican priest, and I figured I'd be a little friendly beforehand with him, since we're going to spend some time together. And so I uh, trying to impress him with my knowledge of the Church of England and Episcopalianism. Uh, and he was taught this was a highly liturgical funeral service. And I said, uh, oh, shade, just being funny, I said, shades of Archbishop Laud. And he looked at me because apparently he was an admirer of Archbishop Laud. I mean, after all, he's Archbishop Canterbury. And said, well, how do you know about Archbishop Laud? With a smile on his face. And I said, with a smile on mine, because I know about Oliver Cromwell. Oliver Cromwell's the one that had Laud beheaded. So there was a quick look of terror on his face. But anyway, okay, we come back. Archbishop Laud was the exact opposite of Charles I. Laud was, was resolute, untiring, determined. He was an overbearing Arminian and Erastian. Now, we already know what Arminianism is. Erastian is the philosophy of a man named Thomas uh, Erastus, who believed that the church should be under the state, that the church and the state are not to be uh, institutionally separate, but that the church is simply an arm of the state and the king is to be the head of the church. Laud was moral. He was morally blameless. He was not involved in any kind of scandals throughout his whole life. In his personal life, he was at least externally moral. He was diligent in the discharge of his duty as he saw it, and he was total in his devotion to his king. He was the only man in the whole administration of Charles I who could not be bribed. But Archbishop Laud was narrow-minded, unscrupulous, haughty, irascible, vindictive, blindly ritualistic, cruelly despotic, and tyrannical. For years, he was the king's most confidential advisor in state as well as in church affairs. He gathered around him other unscrupulous assistants because he, to follow James I's idea, wanted to harry all of the Puritans out of the church, harry all of the constitutionalists out of the state, and to set up in church and state in England a system to which he gave the name this is his words, not mine. Thorough. Thorough absolutism in the state. Thorough despotism in the church. That was his self-conscious, deliberate, thought-out goals. And he would dominate the king toward reaching that goals. Thoroughness in tyranny. Now, that's the worst kind. Thoroughness in tyranny. Absolutism in the state. Despotism in the church. He virtually condemned and stigmatized as Puritanism, which was a dirty word, the old Augustinian doctrines of his predecessor. Remember we talked about the last Augustinian Archbishop of Canterbury, George Abbott, gentle, tolerant, godly man. Laud succeeded him. And although Augustinianism, Calvinism, the Reformed faith, was the official doctrine of the Church of England, Laud pretended that it wasn't and gave it a title of Puritanism, and uh, treated it as, as if it were some kind of religious sect or extreme position. House of Commons didn't take this. Because, as you can imagine, most of the Parliament were men who believed in or who had sided with, for one reason or another, the Protestant Reformation. He used all of the powers of his high office of Archbishop of Canterbury and his control over the High Commission to use a rigor and a savagery in the persecution of the, Pur of the Puritans unknown in England prior to that. I mean, now, get, think who we've already had. We've already had the High Commission under Elizabeth, under James, persecuting Christians. We already had Bloody Mary beheading and killing 300. 
But now when you study history, you'll find that Archbishop Laud now uses the High Commission to persecute Puritans, Calvinists, Presbyterians with a savagery that had been unheard of thus far. He condemned all kinds of people to lifelong imprisonment, to cruel mutilations of their body, to ruinous fines that drove them into bankruptcy, and the crimes that they were accused of that brought down such savagery was failure to go along with the forms of the church. Many of these people, treated like common, low-class felons, were great preachers and scholars and theologians, lawyers, doctors, physicians, scholars. Treated by Arch, under Archbishop Laud's influence like scum. There's one particular man you need to know about. His name was Alexander Layton, L-E-I-G-H-T-O-N. He was a Calvinist minister, and he was brought before the Star Chamber because he authored a book against bishops, against Episcopal Church government. He said that the institution of bishops, now remember the bishops dominated everything. They were, as long as they knew they had the approval of the king, then their tyrannical, uh, their, their tyranny was terrible in church and state. And in this book, Alexander Layton said that the institution of bishops was anti-Christian and satanic. So what happened to him as a result? Under Archbishop Laud's influence. Alexander Layton was put in iron chains. He was kept in solitary confinement for 15 weeks in an unheated cell full of rice, rats, and mice and open to snow and rain. His hair fell out because of the inclement weather. His skin peeled off. He was tied to a stake and received 36 strikes with a heavy cord on his naked back, was placed in the pillory for two hours in November's frost and snow. He was branded in the face, had his nose slit open and his ears cut off, and was condemned to life imprisonment. Because he didn't believe in and had the audacity to write against a government ruled by bishops. This is the kind of treatment that the Puritans could expect under Archbishop Laud and the Arminian bishops who supported him. And it's a remarkable paradox, too, don't you think? Because it's the Arminians who accuse the Calvinists of being so cruel as to believe that God's salvation is selective and by discriminatory grace. The very people that called the Calvinists cruel were the ones that slit the nose and cut off the ears and tortured the Calvinists. Now, why was Archbishop Laud so cruel and so severe? Because he was smart. He understood the issues in a way that Christians in America are just beginning to understand the issues. And if we'd understood this 50, 60 years ago, we'd be well down the road toward victory now. But we were, well, let's go on. Why, why did he? Why was he so savage? Because he understood that controversy on important doctrinal subjects cultivates the power of thought. And that preaching and lecturing cultivates knowledge. He knew also that men who have been trained to think and whose minds have acquired a store of sound biblical knowledge are incapable of becoming slaves either of tyranny or of superstition. And so he suppressed everything that had a tendency toward cultivating men's ability to think. If you're going to be a tyrant and you want people to submit, you cannot afford for them to think. If you want to create a generation of slaves to tyranny and superstition, you've got to keep them dumb. You're not going to believe this, particularly if you went to public schools like I did and you haven't read anything in the meanwhile. 
You know why. You've been reading on how we've seen a decline, a massive decline in SAT scores and in academic accomplishment in public schools. Now, if you talk to the liberal, for instance, when Reagan was president, they did a study of American education and said that, that if a foreign nation had done to our public schools what we'd done to our public schools, we would have considered it an act of war. And then a decade later, they had another follow-up study of American schools, and they found that people were doing better in SAT scores, but they didn't tell you they curved the, curved the grades. And you say, well, that's terrible for, for things to be that bad. Now, here's what you're not going to believe unless you've done some reading. John Dewey, the father of public education, followers of John Dewey, deliberately had as a part of their plan the dumbing down of the American populace and the American student. Lowering the literacy rate of students was a deliberate part of the design of the humanists who created and fostered the public school movement. The dumber the populace, the more submissive the populace. And brother, we got a submissive populace. And you see it in the churches. You go to the average church, what the preacher going to do is the whole purpose of his sermon is to make you feel a certain way, not to make you think. If he makes you think, well, you're not going to go back, or at least the average person's not going to go back hear that preacher again because what he says is over my head, and I don't leave feeling warm inside. What, what, are, what are they saying? I want to stay dumb. Don't make me think. I'm happy being a slave. Well, that was, that was Laud. Laud knew what he was doing in trying to suppress thinking. What was the result of Laud's savagery? He revived persecutions of anybody that was a nonconformist, that is, that would refuse to conform to the liturgy and the practices, the Anglo-Catholic liturgies and practices of the Church of England, and he would persecute these Puritans with utmost strictness. Wickedly, in fact, he would think up new innovations to use to persecute them. And not only would he think up new innovations, he would also create new crimes and new victims that he might oppress. So that if anybody had any difficulties with any of the new ceremonies of the Church of England, which they got from Roman Catholicism, he would have some basis to persecute them and to bring them before the High Commission. Terrifying court. Anybody who preached Calvinism now with the king silencing debate, anybody who preached the Reformed faith, he had a basis to bring them before the court and to terrorize them with all of his persecution and torture. He was committed that there would be no half conformity to religion in England. That everybody would totally conform to the despotism of the king in the church or suffer the most cruel of penalties. This attitude of Bishop Laud convinced many in England they could no longer stay and keep their families in England. Many of them went to Holland. Many of them went to some newly, newly populated places across the ocean in North America. You and I have a great deal to thank Charles I for. Because many of our forefathers came to this land to escape the tyranny of Bishop Laud and of Charles I. Well, the Puritans were tenacious in their resistance to Laud. He was inflexible in his persecution and they were just as inflexible in their response. Why? Because the Puritans were a bunch of stubborn Calvinists who didn't know when to give in? No. They understood what Laud wanted. They understood what the issue was. They understood that Laud demanded the total surrender of mind, soul, and conscience to the state. Not simply in liturgical matters, but also with regard to the Reformed faith, which the Puritans believed to be founded on the Word of God. That Laud's ultimate goal was the total surrender of the mind and the conscience and the soul to the state. To believe whatever the state told you to believe, 
to do whatever the state told you to do, to hold whatever opinion the state would have you hold, and to show the smallest disagreement was to be unpatriotic at best, disloyal, seditious, and rebellious at worst, for which you could suffer great punishment. Things haven't changed much in anti-Christian cultures. Well, after Laud established totalitarian control of the church and the state for Charles I in England, he turned his attention to Ireland and Scotland. Now, we've already talked about Ireland, Scotch-Irish, who went there under James I because James wanted to bring some order into Northern Ireland. And so these Scottish Presbyterians and English Puritans and French Huguenots went there, found refuge, and uh, prospered on great pieces of land there in Northern Ireland. Well, Ireland was still free from a lot of the totalitarianism of James I and his bishops and Charles I and his bishops. There were more freedom for the Reformed faith in Ireland at this point in time than there was in England. Archbishop Laud couldn't sleep at night realizing that was true. Because he had to get these people, these Calvinists over here in Northern Ireland, under the heel of the state. So in 1634, Laud secured the adoption of a new and more stringent code for the church and the people of Ireland, requiring strict and total subscription to all of the ceremonies that was even more severe than what he required of the English people, because the purpose was to root out the Puritans in this old refuge of Northern Ireland. The Puritans could find refuge there from the tyranny of the king. That's where many of them had gone. Many of them prospered. They were enjoying the freedom of worship and freedom of religion for the Reformed faith. Archbishop Laud couldn't stand it, so he imposed upon them more stringent demands. And as a result, many of these Scotch-Irish could no longer find asylum in North, Northern Ireland. So they came to America. We have a lot to thank Archbishop Laud for, because many of our forefathers are here because of his tyranny. Having succeeded in controlling Ireland, now Archbishop Laud turns to reform Scotland. Scotland reformed legally and on paper and legitimately in the hearts of the people was the last refuge now where Englishmen could go and find shelter from the tyranny of the King of England. Those Puritans that were hunted down could go to Reformed and Presbyterian Scotland and be safe. Even though James I earlier had imposed an Episcopal system and there were still bishops and Anglican priests in Scotland, nevertheless the Presbyterian Church was strong, the Reformed faith was strong, and people could go there and find refuge, and Laud was determined that that would not continue. He wanted to slam that door to safety for the Puritans in their face. So Laud gets the prelates, the bishops of Scotland, by threats and by flatteries to go along with him and imposing upon the Scottish church a prayer book, Roman uh, Anglo-Catholic doctrines and liturgy, Episcopal government, to the English church now. Scotland's another country. Archbishop Laud now is, tell, is making the Scottish people, with the full authority of the king, put their neck in the yoke of England. Shades of Richard Longshanks in the days of Braveheart. You don't do that to Scottish people and get away with it. So Archbishop Laud imposed upon this nation of Scotland... Upon this Scottish church, a book of rules and regulations more severe than what he had imposed upon England. Because they hated these Scottish Calvinists. You know one of the things he prohibited? Outlawed in the Church of Scotland? Extemporary prayers. In any worship service, you must read your prayers or go to jail. And be deposed from office. Lose your salary, be driven into exile and poverty for your whole family. If you dare say a prayer that you made up rather than read what has been assigned you. Well, his totalitarianism was complete. The English Puritans 
had been silenced. Those who had taken refuge in Northern Ireland were silenced. Things had reached their extremity. But when they tried to put the Scottish neck into the English yoke, they made the greatest mistake in their career. Because that attempt to force these Presbyterians of Scotland to submit to the King of England as the head of the Church of England and to English church practices aroused within them a righteous anger and indignation that caught fire and spread throughout the entire world. We'll come back to that. Let's go to Thomas Wentworth, the Earl of Strafford. There were two great leaders in Parliament at this time. Parliament was overwhelmingly reformed. And there were two men in the House of Commons who couldn't stand George Villiers, the Earl of Buckingham, and, and the tyranny of those around the king. And both of these two men agreed that if England's going to have peace, the king of England has to acknowledge publicly the rights and authority of Parliament as the voice of the people. James I wouldn't do it. He said the Parliament had no rights, only privileges that I give it. And they understood if the people are going to be free, they had to have a voice in government, and that voice would be Parliament. And so, therefore, the king had to recognize the authority of Parliament. And the two great leaders in Parliament this time were Sir John Eliot. You already heard about him. He's in prison. And another very wealthy and ambitious, highly gifted man, arrogant, by the name of Thomas Wentworth. Thomas Wentworth and John Eliot were the two leaders of the House of Commons, trying to restrict the tyranny of the king and provide for the authority of Parliament and the freedom of the people. John Eliot went to jail rather than compromise. Wentworth compromised rather than going to jail. Thomas Wentworth deserted Parliament, deserted Parliament's cause, deserted the reformed Calvinistic cause, deserted the, the cause of freedom and of representative government, and sided with Charles I, Arminianism, and, tyra and tyranny. Charles I very quickly rewarded Thomas Wentworth for coming back into the fold. So he gave him the, author the, the title Lord Wentworth and eventually Earl of Strafford. Earl of Strafford, Thomas Wentworth believed that the people must learn to take everything which the government chooses to send them as they take rain from heaven. Sound familiar? He was for the sweeping control of the king over everything and everybody in England. So because of his faithful support of the tyranny of the king, King Charles gave him another reward. He made him Lord Deputy of Ireland. And now he had the whole nation of Ireland to do with as he will. And his goal in Ireland was to raise as much... This helps you understand, see, the Irish Republican Army and the whole English-Irish thing now. Thomas Wentworth's one goal as Lord Deputy of Ireland was to raise as much money as he could from the Irish people and send, him to, send it to Charles I. Now, bear in mind something about Ireland. We're not talking about Northern Ireland now. We're talking about Ireland. Two things about Ireland at this particular point in time. Roman Catholic, those Irish people that were religious were Roman Catholic. Not Anglo-Catholic, but Roman Catholic. They believed the Pope to be the head of the church, not the King of England. And those that were not religious were bloodthirsty pagans. And later on, we're going to hear about an Irish massacre that resulted in the, in the slaughter of tens of thousands of people by the Irish pagans. But anyway, uh, he did whatever it took. To establish Charles I's tyranny in Ireland, to raise as much money. And so Wentford trampled on everybody, Protestant, Catholic, pagan alike, in Ireland. He enjoyed the brutal use of authority. His crimes against Irish property rights were virtually unlimited. He crushed and ruined, without adequate legal cause, many of the highest and most influential and most honorable people in the land. 
Later on, we'll, we'll hear about this, but when Scotland wouldn't bend to Charles's tyranny over the church of Scotland, and it looked like Scotland was about to rebel against the king, Charles sent for Strafford, his faithful servant in Ireland, to come back into England with a massive Irish Catholic pagan mercenary army to support Laud's thorough system of despotism. Strafford advised the king. He'd been gone for a long time. He didn't realize how the hostility between the king and the parliament had grown. And so he said to the king, you're going to need a lot of money to support the kind of army you're going to need to put down a rebellion in Scotland and to support your throne. So you better call parliament. I know you haven't had one in 11 years. But you better call parliament and ask them for some money, not realizing how much by this time parliament hated the king. So the king at Strafford's unwise recommendation told the king that it would consider his financial king uh, needs only if it dealt with the grievances against his tyranny. Charles said the very thought was traitorous. The very idea that Parliament would complain against the king meant they were a bunch of traitors. And so after having called the Parliament 23 days earlier on May the 5th, he dissolved it. And ever since, it's been called the short Parliament because it's only 23 days long. When he did that, riots erupted all over London. The popular opinion was that King Charles was being, was being misled and dominated by the Earl of Strafford and Archbishop Laud. So a mob got together and attacked the palace, wanted to get Laud out into lynching. Strafford, with the king, moved his army toward Scotland. The Scots moved more swiftly against the royal army. And drove the, Eng the army, uh, the English army before them in panic. And the Scotch army came into England and set up itself at a place called Newcastle, where an entire Scottish army stayed inside, Presbyterian army might say, stayed inside England for a great while. You can imagine the threat that army was to the king and what an encouragement it was to Parliament. Neither Charles nor Strafford understood the intensity of the anger of the English people toward them after the dissolving of the short parliament, which was their representative government, their only voice against tyranny. Riots broke out. Mobs wandered through the streets of London crying out for the death of the Archbishop of Canterbury, Archbishop Laud. The police moved in. Punishments were drastic. The, the complainers were driven underground. Civil war had begun to manifest itself in England. But the people still didn't understand. They thought the real problem was Strafford and Laud. If you just get rid of Strafford and Laud, King Charles would be good. They didn't realize King Charles's potential for tyranny and for treachery. When Wentworth, the Earl of Strafford, heard that the Calvinists in Parliament were determined to reduce the king's authority, he abandoned Parliament, joined causes with the king, and as the dictator of Ireland, readied a half-Catholic pagan mercenary army right on the shores of England. And the question then is for these Calvinists in Parliament, what is going to prevent the Earl of Strafford from marching into England against the English people and against the Reformed churches? In defense of the king, a mighty army of thousands that would by force reduce England to slavery before King Charles by brutal force. What's going to stop him? And of course, Parliament's conclusion, we're the only ones that stand between such a force and freedom. We'll come back to it next week. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that in your providence you use the hands of wicked and evil men to accomplish your purposes. We thank you for your providential dealings with these people. Wentworth, Charles, Laud, we thank you for using them to get people to these shores. We thank you for the way you provide, protected your church, for the way you caused her to, to grow into maturity and greatness and power. And we thank you for the flames of, that, that you use of persecution to purify and strengthen your church. 
We thank you for the effects of revival. We pray that you bring cleansing and revival in our day. Because we know, O oh Lord, it's the only hope against tyranny we have. For Jesus' sake, amen. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.